Sometimes you can live in absolute adversity but survive. And my comment is as long as you can get up in the morning, breathe the sweet oxygen in the air and move, you're in front. And uh, if I'm struggling, I will say, uh, yeah, I am struggling a bit. But I'll always, if anyone says to me, how are you today? I always say, any better I'd be twins. Can you cope with that? I'm Teresa Hudson, coordinator of the Community Information Centre, and we are back in Winton for this episode of Brave, talking to Leonard. We discuss what brought him to this community and why he has decided to stay. Leonard is a big believer in being mentally strong and making sure you have the courage to ask for help when needed. My chat with Leonard was extremely uplifting and as a man in his 70s, he has no intention of slowing down because he knows he still has a lot to give. Please note this episode includes discussion of suicide and mental health. If issues in this episode raise any concerns for you, please reach out to support services listed in the episode description. The Community Information Centre would like to acknowledge the Koa, Wulgarugaba and Bindul people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast was recorded and produced. I've been able to observe over five years this town goes through and the people in it, everyday people, go through the floods and the droughts and the mass cattle deaths and, you know, pull mm. together for a concert or a festival and stuff like that. Yeah, so what do, you, what do you like about that that has brought you to stay in this town? Oh, the fact that um, people have a common um, value that I was sort of raised up to and that was to realise the things you can control or can change at a particular point in time, to have the um, humility to accept the things you can't change and the common sense to know the difference between the two. And then to... Well, it is what it is and we just go forward from there. And I've seen that in this town so many times. And starting with my, at my point, I was a witness for the police in an armed robbery many years ago where if I didn't withdraw my statement, they threatened to kill my daughters. And uh, I took them on. But um, in the end, I actually realised that there was not much I could do to change the system because the system was what it was. So I sort of got on with it, you know, uh, and over the years since, I've suffered some pretty significant losses through uh, fraud and a few other things like that and some business failures. And so some people throw their arms in the air, for example, and say, OK, I'm going bankrupt and then go on the dole. Uh, to me, that's, that's like giving up and... Sort of, you may as well vegetate and die, as far as I'm concerned. So if I just keep plugging on, and uh, here I am now. I've just, while I was in hospital recently, I had uh, large five-figure sum stripped from my super fund. So right now, I'm starting construction work again. You know, and I sort of work down at the Hall of Fame, doing a little bit of work here. I do a little bit of work around town. So to me, it's just, you know, you pick up and go the next day. Mm. So your background is construction and the building industry? Yes. How long have you been in the industry? This is my 52nd year. So where did you start in the industry and how old were you when you started? I actually started uh, construction-related work at school. I did very well at woodwork, metalwork, and I did an allied trade to fitting and turning, um, but it 
was not taking me anywhere professionally. So I moved to Brisbane with a young family and walked onto a high-rise site one morning with a positive attitude and landed myself a job sweeping rubbish. I saw young guys walking around with um, blue shorts and white long socks and white short sleeve shirts and when I asked what, who they were, they said, oh, they're the project manager's message boys, which is not true. They were actually cadets. So I identified the fact that there was a professional career in managing major construction works. And so as a mature age person with a young family, I put myself through QUT. And uh, as I graduated, I actually needed to give one of my own final year subject lectures. So uh, needless to say, I passed that subject mm. with flying colours. So you, you went to uni, yeah. like I said, as a mature age student, yeah. married with young children. Yeah. How did you get through that? Were you working still while you were studying? Oh, yes. I was actually riding a crane hook up and down on high-rise buildings and uh, climbing tall scaffolds and climbing cranes. We used to have to do university three nights and one afternoon a week and some Saturdays doing surveying because you can't do that in the room. And then three nights a week I used to also ride concrete slabs up and down on the crane uh, till one o'clock in the morning and I'd go home, have a few hours sleep and come back to a job in King George Square, the Reserve Bank uh, high-rise that I was the foreman on. So, yeah. yeah. How old were your children? In nappies. Right, okay. Very young, yeah. Because yeah. still, like, I, I think that's an amazing um, thing for children to grow up and see how determined and... Um, career orientated their family are and what they've got to do to get there. Like it's really important for children today to see that. Um, well, a good example is my eldest daughter. She's now a senior manager in Qantas and she started as a nurse, moved across to the airlines and she has just progressed because she applies herself and, you know. But, yeah, it is a good example. And my father was always a hard-working guy on a farm and we used to have to get up at four in the morning and, each milk about 40 litres of milk by hand before we went about the day's chores. And we did our schooling by distance education and uh, I wasn't overly wrapped in this paperwork business at that stage of life, so I would do my week's work in about a day and a half, two days, and that meant I spent another five days on the horse, you know. So, yeah, I was lucky to have a good example in my father and then also be able to make choices about how to tackle my week from an early age, you know, so, yeah. So once you finished uni, um, you mentioned that you were then started lecturing. How long were you there for? I lectured part-time for from 76 through to 86 and then I was full-time lecturing there for the next six years and while I was running a consulting business in project management as well. Then I went back out into industry again, so I never left the industry but just had a busy timetable. Yeah, yeah. So when you left uni, where did you go? You went back into working on projects for apartments yeah, and managing yeah. apartments or refinery works or pipelines, that type of thing, yeah. So what brought you to Winton originally? After the incident with the armed robbery, I went through a very difficult time. Um, if you read any of the material on uh, personal crisis management, you will see how you go through these stages of anger and guilt and... You blame the system and you blame yourself. Um, and were you robbed or you said, did you say you witnessed a robbery? I was actually beaten. I had both hands broken, three ribs broken with a hammer and uh, my face done in, head done in. And uh, no, I actually, it, how I got into it, well, I actually witnessed an armed robbery in the course of action and ended up getting dragged in by the police to become a witness. So I didn't hesitate. And the next thing they threatened to kill my kids. But uh, 
at the end of the day, we, we got all through it. So then I went back into my business for a while and uh, I had gone trying to buy the franchise for a mobile payment system to go into Hong Kong and China and um, I'd actually, the guy that was supposed to pay for the development of the software out of the monies that I bought the franchise with decided to go to Chiang Mai and spend it and so I had to take all that over so pretty highly stressed backwards or forwards only a few years ago to Asia and my hip failed, I had to come back from major surgery so that cost me an absolute fortune. So um, I was in Brisbane, I'd been building smaller apartments in Canberra for about two years and finished that, come back to Brisbane and I got a phone call to say, how would you like to, your name's been given to us to uh, manage a project for the Winton Shire Council in the middle of nowhere and I said, where's Winton? And they said, two hours west of Longreach. I said, what's the project? They said, a reasonably complex project called the Walsing Matilda Centre. And I said, yeah, okay, I'll talk to you more about it. So we spoke for nearly an hour that day and then I went in for an interview the next day and within two weeks I was on an aircraft out here and I must have drank the water and never left, you know, so. <laughs> Great tasting water too, isn't it? It is. No, it is. Um <laughs> Once you put it in a bottle and stick it in the fridge, by the time it's cool, there's no smell. It's all good to go. Yes. Yeah. So you ended up staying here. Yes. Because the Walsing Matilda Centre is now built. Yeah. It's functioning. It's open. I've managed to supervise the main street upgrade. I've done some other works around here. Um, the company that did the display in the Walsing Matilda Centre, they did the um, Roman Street Sale Yards display, so I had to go and inspect that. And they were successful in winning the contract for the upgrade of the Stockman's Hall of Fame. And so I've just finished that. That was a, physically, it was a pretty challenging job. So what damage I hadn't done to my knees by the time that job was started and was certainly done by the time it was finished. So uh, it was a, a fairly intense project. So, yeah. Do you plan on hanging around here? I love the west. I, where I was brought up on Harvey's Range, west of Townsville, we ran right. the post office. There are only six properties and I've seen situations there where we've had, in the early days, we had no phone, only a World War II radio connected to Townsville that could only operate at certain hours of the day and we had drovers used to come past our house, camp there and pick up their mail. One, went, uh, one guy's horse went down and he ended up with a compound fracture of his leg and a crushed pelvis and we radioed for several hours until about two o'clock in the afternoon and he was in agony. We had no morphine to, other than whiskey or a few things like that to give him to quieten him down and everyone got all the horses together and they hung him sideways on a pack horse and took him down 1,200 feet down the mountain, you know, so to meet the ambulance sitting at the bottom because the road was closed coming up the hill. So, And you start to see all the property owners come together and, you know, to make sure this guy got to hospital and got treatment. And that's, that's, that's gold, that sort of community spirit, you know. And I see that around here in Winton. I know it's in other towns and, uh, you know, that's what I like about this country. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. I think you're really right. And, and from even with people we've spoken to out here in Winton, it's the community spirit that brings them together. And, and through Brave, we try and capture people's stories of the services and the supports that they use to get through their challenging times. I think what's a highlight for a regional town and especially like Winton, your supports in terms of your agencies is very minimal. 
but the way that the communities get through it is together. Would you agree? Yes, yes. It's getting people to admit that they're struggling and if I'm struggling, I will say, uh, yeah, I am struggling a bit. But I'll always, if anyone says to me, how are you today? I always say, any better I'd be twins. Can you cope with that? And uh, they almost, they also always say, like, thank God we don't have to. Um, and move forward. And I have a little Latin saying called non illegitimus carburundus, don't let the bastards grind you down. So you just hunker down and, uh, you know, it is what it is, you know. So what can we do to get over it? And what can't I change? All right, okay, what can I change? And sometimes you can live in absolute adversity but survive. It's like all these property owners that have had such massive losses around here lately in the last few years. They don't just suddenly walk away. Occasionally they do. But it's the quality I see in the people where they just hunker down and, and then have look to their neighbour to see if they can do anything. And it's I'm a strong believer in are you OK? Because I do a lot of work in high-rise construction or heavy construction. And as tough as those characters seem to think they are, we do on big sites look after uh, our mates and keep an eye on them. And I had a case of an 18-year-old apprentice of ours who... Uh, two or three of us on site were watching him. He had this problem and that problem. He was very introverted. And then out of the blue, uh, one morning he never showed up for work and his brother rang up and said, no, he just hung himself this morning. So, uh, you know, you never know where it's coming from. So, you know, and you can have someone that looks... We've had people in this town uh, that were well-known to everyone in the main street, went away for a few days and then suddenly committed suicide. You know, and uh, why? They were just seem to be outgoing, bubbly people, but there were underlying family or other issues. So it's important that, uh, you know, and then when you see someone that's got a problem that they've got the courage to talk about it and open up and say, well, look, this is, what, this is how I feel and this is why I feel that way. And that is what we think we need more of in the community. And my other comment is as long as you can get up in the morning, breathe the sweet oxygen in the air and move, you're in front because you can always look around the world and see a lot of people that are far worse off than you are and they manage. You know, one of the lessons I got when I went to Hong Kong was no matter what people's station was, you know, they'd be sleeping in cardboard boxes under freeway overpasses. They were always smiling and polite and uh, there was no nasty. It was just this is our situation, we'll manage, you know, and... Uh, Within 20 feet of them, a woman would pull up in her first stole in a black Rolls Royce with two bodyguards and she'd walk over and point at a fish and they would dress the fish and she'd get it in a shopping bag and or she didn't get it, they got it and then she got back in the Rolls and that was her dinner shopping. But people sleeping in the cardboard boxes, they were happy as pigs in mud. You know? Yeah. So with your role here in the Winton community now, um, we'd first touch point with you when you were at the Winton's Men's Shed. Yeah. What's your involvement there? I'm president of the Men's Shed for the moment, yes. And what's the Men's Shed's role in the community? What can you do at the Men's Shed and and what's what's available there? Well, the Men's Shed um, uh, was created as a refuge for men to go and get together and talk you know, which fits in with the brave thing, you know, at least have, find some solace in male company. Um, I see the role as being twofold. Let people come and work on projects if they wish to, just to keep them occupied so they're not at loose ends. 
Secondly, there's an opportunity for us to run little projects making things like souvenirs for people like Caulfield and Fitzmaurice to actually sell to tourists and that's one of the newest things I'm looking at. Um, the men's shed is used by the uh, ladies' creative arts group in town uh, to do furniture restoration and things like that. Uh, we've just been buying some new tools and equipment and the other suggestion made was that where some uh, high school students or young people feel they've got a need or a liking to get into, say, the building industry or some trade, mm. then we, we to create some opportunities by having workshops or small projects under supervision. How amazing would that be yet to influence um, the generations coming through from the generations who have got so much knowledge and information to give? Yeah. Well, that's how I started. Oh, the first uh, few weeks I was on a high-rise project. Uh, when I finally got off sweeping rubbish, we would sit down to have our smoker 20 floors up in the air and when I finished eating, uh, I'd feel the impact of a coil of rope in my stomach and it would be uh, an old guy who was over 65 and still working at high levels and say, give us a splice and iron that for me, Coity, and... Uh, and he would teach me how to splice rope. And then there was another guy who was, again, over 65. He taught me how to walk and, and on steel and do high-rise scaffolding work. And uh, he spent an inordinate amount of time teaching me what to do and what not to do because I very quickly learnt that if you saw someone that was very old in high-risk construction, he obviously knew what the right way to do it because most of the others were either in wheelchairs or in the cemetery. So... Um, <laughs> It was always valuable experience and yeah. so – and even um, when I was lecturing at university, we were going through a situation where the government was trying to get small builders and tradies to operate more effectively. So I was doing um, a refresher courses for tradies and licensed builders, just running a few weeks on how to better run their jobs and that type of thing and more recently, I've run a training program for foremen in Canberra for the master builders and I had 37 guys in the course and uh, they all stayed the full 13 weeks and to listen to me for 13 weeks is probably an ordeal in itself. But, uh, you know, I love mentoring people and even if I get on the job, even now, and I see a young person struggling with something, I'll say there is an easier way to do that or a safer way to do that. So, um, you know, why don't you try this? And, uh, yeah, because that's what these people did to me. And as a community, that's what we need to do in the mental health and the uh, life skills and coping sort of strategies as well, you know. Mm -hmm. Mates in Construction has been another um, organisation that you've been involved in. What was your involvement with that? So I didn't take up any official positions with Mates in Construction, but um, I strongly supported everything they were doing. I acted wherever I can as a buddy. For example, on one project in town, Chobani, the um, berry yogurt people made the mistake of parking their van in front of the job and they were actually handing you know, fruit yogurt to guys as they walked in high vis as they walked up the footpath. And so I went up and said, look, how many of those can I have? And they said, where's it for? I said, all my guys. So I ended up walking away with cases and cases of Chobani, which we threw in the fridge. And so they were given one each every morning. When I ran projects on the Sunshine Coast, for example, it used to grieve me to see young apprentices come in with two cans of mother and two Chico rolls for breakfast. And Yeah, not a good start to no, the day. No. But an easy start, but not a oh, good yeah, start. Yeah. Out of all the projects that you've run, 
in your career, is there one that stands out that stayed with you that you were really proud of to be a part of? Probably the most challenging and satisfying was the Walsing Matilda Centre and more recently the Stockman's Hall of Fame because they're high-end, high-quality, high-tech museum-type projects, um, you have to think. Um, From running a project point of view, probably the most satisfying was a pair of twin towers I did on the Sunshine Coast where I used to, my habit is to cook for the guys on Saturday morning breakfast and it's not just a banger and a slice of bread, it's eggs, mushrooms, onions, bacon and uh, because, and I, and I had a few basic HR rules in relation to getting guys motivated. I'd say no Sunday work, uh, one o'clock uh, Saturday the security guy locks the gates, half the guys used to come in on Saturday morning just to have pack their tools up and get ready for the next week and then have their breakfast at 9.30 and wander off. But that breakfast gave everyone a very good ability to bond and um, know each other's problems and work together because I had rules like if you see someone going through a door struggling with a load he's carrying or uh, he's short an extension lead or something, just don't go and steal yours back. Just see, are you okay? Can I help you with uh, that? And it's putting that team, esprit de corps, in uh, everything that happened. And uh, uh, they knew that I was looking after their back as well as they, they were just going about their daily work. Yeah. Mm. You you've sound like you've got very high values in your, um, your attitude, your work ethic and your attributes to work. Where has that come from? And what, who were your mentors or who was your person you looked up to growing up to have that in you? I guess it was my father's commitment to working with other people in the community we had. But in my very early days, I went and did a um, management consulting training program on supervision skills. And I suddenly realised that there was more to it than just cracking the whip and flogging someone if they didn't meet KPIs. Um, As I started studying at university, I looked around and said, hang on, there's got to be better ways of doing this. And I actually took myself off to the States as a member of the Project Management Institute. And over there it was I met a guy who was working on the Voyager project at NASA and went to a lecture at the Rose Bowl on how they achieved the almost impossible. They didn't know how they were going to do it, what technology they needed, and they sat down and explained to us how they went about identifying first the technology they needed to develop, then how they would develop it, and then applying it to that particular project. And I came back to Australia and, of course, um, uh, they just said, oh, that's all academic bulldust. you just got to set targets and flog someone or find them if they don't reach the objective. And I then was juxtaposed to um, most of the thinking in the industry. So, and I had the strength of conviction then to know that what I'd witnessed in in the States and I befriended a lieutenant colonel psychologist who was working at Cape Canaveral. He'd written so much in the way of research material so I researched all his material and his sources and I said, yeah, this is what's missing, you know. People have to want to be part of a team and all that sort of thing because I could see that even within the teams in NASA there was a vast difference between what the project participants saw as success and what the project managers saw as success and what their managers saw as success. And so they all looked at it differently and so it was a vast field. So 
as I uh, got to lecturing at uh, QUT, I uh, did a lot of research in that and actually passed a lot of that information on to my students. And, uh, yeah, now, probably the best achievement I had at uh, uni was when uh, I was challenged about uh, on not creating employees in my course but creating people who wanted to be do their own thing. And I said, well... I've got 60% of my fourth-year class in strategic management and financial management who are all running their own business. I said, and they haven't, they've got two years to go before they graduate. Does that tell you something? And my boss used to say, look, no, 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 I'm not criticising. He said, I just thought you'd like to know the feedback. I said, yeah, the feedback is I'm doing something right. And so I've always been a little bit outside the, uh, the field and that sort of thing, you know. Yeah, mm. and that comes back to loving to mentor and, yeah. Yeah, that's great. Leonard, do you mind if I um, disclose how old you are? No. You're 75, is that yes. correct? and for another couple of weeks. That's amazing because you don't sound like you're slowing down. I'm just getting started again after having another hit. Yeah, you're, so you're just recovering from knee surgery and... An infection. And, uh, yeah. Blood poisoning, yeah. And that was the only reason that slowed you down for that period of time, not because you oh, decided that and to. Oh, that someone getting into my bank account while I was under anaesthetic, yes. Right. Um, in the construction industry for 50, over 51 years, you're still managing projects, you're still very active in the community doing a lot and you're 75 years of age. What's next? Keep going. And why is that? Because you're retirement age. You could easily retire right now or, you know, and go on the pension and, and do it, you know. I remember watching an interview on 60 Minutes, um, a mathematician at 95 years of age at University of Queensland. He comes in, he was coming in three or four days a week to help the engineering students with their statistical analyses. And he said, how long are you going to keep doing this? And he said, until I die. <laughs> he was 95. He, and he was as wiry as anything could ever be. Um, and, you know, I know so many, some of my people, students from university have since passed on. So many of the people I taught at the university have retired. Um, one of them is uh, Deputy Director General of a Government Department and um, his standard comment used to be, Lenny, whenever I see you walk into a meeting room, I know there's hope for us all. <laughs> because I, I was still going. Yeah. So, yeah, I love the energy of just doing things, you know, and um, be involved, you know. Yeah. Thank you for spending your time with me this morning and sharing your story. Um, Winton's very lucky to have you here. Thank you. Yeah. BRAVE is jointly funded by the Commonwealth and Queensland governments under the Disaster Recovery Funding Arrangements. This podcast is produced by Damien Lawarden.